Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. What is the one issue that divides churches more than any other? What is the one issue that splinters relationships and friendships more than any other? The answer, of course, is pride. Our natural tendency, the sinful tendency, is to seek our own elevation, even at the expense of others. Our natural sinful tendency is to elevate our opinions and and our thoughts above others. We naturally demand our own way. We naturally seek recognition. In short, we all struggle with pride. Our society promotes pride, not as a vice, but as a virtue. We label it as confidence or self-assurance. And we seek leaders whose pride emanates from them. When individuals are struggling with life, our society diagnoses the problem as a lack of pride or or a lack of self-esteem. Social media is built on pride. The belief that everyone needs to know what you or, or your kids did today. The belief that everyone needs to know what you think on a subject. Social media is built around self-love. The problem is that this pride, this self-love, finds its way into the church. And the result is a pandemic of churches splitting and failing because of the sinful, selfish pride of its members. Yet nothing could be further from the heart of God. At the college I graduated from, each of the graduates received a towel upon graduation. This towel right here. Even at the time, it seemed like a very odd gift. Note uh, that, that in this, on this towel, it says, displayed on it, be great, serve. The longer I've observed churches, the more I'm convinced that this message is needed desperately today. In a country built upon the concept of pride, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, or or, you are the only thing that holds you back, or, or you can be whatever you want to be. In that kind of society, we need to learn humility. This is not a new problem. In our text this morning, the disciples illustrate for us the incredible need for humility exemplified in service. And they hear the clarion call of Christ to focus on eternity, humble yourself, and care for others. The text begins with the disciples starting their trek towards Jerusalem. The three disciples, Peter, James, and John, had returned with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they found the other nine disciples unable to cast out a demon. And Jesus informs them that they were unable to. They had no power for this because they tried to do it in themselves. Instead, they need to rely on God. And so Jesus casts out that demon 
And this section immediately follows that. We're going to try to work through verses 30 to 50. Let's note verses 30 through 32 right now of Mark chapter 9. I need to turn there myself. Mark chapter 9, 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The group begins to head south through Galilee. And this trip was the first leg on their journey towards Jerusalem and the cross. As they travel, Jesus avoids towns and crowds so that he can focus on teaching his disciples and to prepare them for what is coming. And again, he taught them about his suffering, death, and resurrection. Verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And note the intentional play on words in those verses. It says that the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of men. It, it notes, emphasizing the humility of Christ, that he had humbled himself and took on human flesh and became obedient even to the death on the cross. And as we celebrated last week, Jesus came to be sin for us and to take the internal punishment of that sin on himself so that all who call on him can have eternal life. All who make him their Lord and master would have eternal life. And in just a matter of weeks, Jesus was going to be betrayed, killed, and ultimately conquer death by rising from the dead. But note also the disciples' response in verse 32. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask them. They were ignorant of what he was saying. Again, the disciples missed the message. And they were afraid to ask him to explain the disciples were not usually afraid to ask Jesus to explain hard teaching or teaching that they didn't understand. So why, why were they afraid to ask him this time? Well, no doubt it was because of the way Peter was rebuked the previous time Jesus had taught on this and they tried to correct him. You remember in the last chapter that Jesus referred to Peter as Satan. Naturally, the disciples had no desire to experience that again. But there's a more important question we need to ask here. Why didn't the disciples understand? Mark has already stated that Jesus taught about his death and resurrection plainly, clearly, in ways they could understand on multiple occasions. Yet they still weren't getting it. Why did they miss the message of God? This is an important question because the same reasons they miss the message of God are the reasons that we miss the message of God. Mark relays for us in the following narrative 
two primary reasons why the disciples missed the message of God. And these reasons stand as a witness against us for they are the same reasons that we miss the message of God. The first reason we miss God's message is because of a desire for a position. We miss God's message because of a desire for a position. Note verses 33 to 37. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Having traveled through Galilee... They arrived at their base in Capernaum, and Mark informs us that they entered into the house. This is probably Peter and Andrew's house there in Capernaum that's referred to in chapter 1. And when they arrive, Jesus asks them what they were discussing on the way. Now, as you read that, it sounds congenial. They were having a conversation. But the word there actually means they were arguing, they were disputing along the way. And Jesus' question here is not to gain new information. We see that Jesus is clearly aware of what they'd been arguing about. Instead, it's a challenge to bring into the open a debate of which they were apparently ashamed. They were aware that Jesus would not approve of this. You see, they were arguing about who would be the greatest. And from this, we learn that longing for a position causes dissension. Longing for a position causes dissension. One man said, there can be no real unity among proud people because only humble people love. Note verse 34, they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. The disciples stood in shame because they'd been arguing about who would be the greatest, the biggest, the most important, the most powerful. In light of the previous section, this question about who was the greatest may have been sparked by the selection of Peter and James and John to go up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, leaving the others feeling left out. And it was probably exacerbated after the other nine were humiliated because they couldn't cast out the demon from the boy. But we note that while Jesus is teaching them about humility demonstrated by his death and his burial and his resurrection, his taking on our sin, these men were occupied, preoccupied with the question of which one of them would have the highest position in the coming kingdom. While Jesus is talking of rejection and death, they are apparently thinking of an elevated position. Now, it's easy for us to look in scorn on these men arguing about who was the greatest. But we need to understand two things. First, it was quite acceptable to emphasize and promote yourself in the Greco-Roman society. 
For example, Aristotle, one of the most influential philosophers of the day in his Nicomachean ethics, described pride as the crown of virtues. The highest virtue you could have was to be proud. But even more important, we must look in the mirror and recognize that it is considered a virtue today as well. We promote ourselves regularly. We long for elevated positions. We long to have influence. We struggle when we're not promoted at work or when we're not nominated for or voted into positions in the church. We're frustrated when people don't listen to us. We demand that things be done how we want them. We long for people to tell us that we're doing a good job or make us feel important. And when we're not noticed, we're bothered. Let me be frank here. The reason for this church's struggles in the past is that like so many other churches, it has been marked by pride. Each person demonstrating their own way. Each person demanding recognition and status. And before you nod your head and think of other names, you need to look in the mirror. And you need to say your own name. The problem is that this is a recipe for God to do battle against us. Proverbs 3.34 tells us he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4.6 says the same thing. 1 Peter 5.5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Instead, Jesus informs us that we should focus on being a servant. Focus instead on being a servant. Verses 35 to 37, he tells us, he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. When the disciples failed to answer Jesus' question, he sat down and called the disciples to him, and the certain degree of loudness in that verb shows the energy with which Jesus exercised authority. This was not an issue that Jesus would let go. The stakes were too high. This was an issue that needed to be addressed. So Jesus ordered the disciples to gather around and to listen to him. And the lesson he taught them was that in order to be the greatest, you must serve. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In this context, the word all here means all. All people without exception. We are to consider ourselves to be everyone's servants. 
And to illustrate this, he took a child that lived there in the house, possibly a child of Peter or Andrew, and he set the child in front of everyone. And Jesus then proceeded to embrace the child and set the child on his knees. The meaning of this symbolic action cannot be grasped without recognizing the lowly place occupied by children in ancient society. Rabbis considered it, a, considered it a waste of time to teach the Torah to a child under the age of 12. Further, it's helpful to realize that the same Aramaic term, their, their common language, means both child and servant. Jesus was using the child as a visual aid to represent the lowest order in the societal scale. The one who is under authority and care of others and who has not yet achieved the right, the, the right to decide things about their life on their own. They were worried about who would be the greatest. Jesus commands them instead to be servants to the lowest. Jesus was seeking to reverse their value scale to help them understand that they should not seek greatness, but lowliness. Jesus was teaching them that true greatness is not recognition by others, nor is it some exalted position. True greatness entails caring about people, insignificant people like children. Jesus challenges us to be servant of all, especially those who are regarded as lowly and insignificant. In the next chapter, he's going to challenge them. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. One man notes, greatness in the kingdom consists not of a position but of ministry. This is why Paul challenged the Philippians of Philippians chapter 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Instead of seeking recognition, instead of seeking a position, Instead of demanding that things be done how you want them to be done, seek to serve others. There's no matriarch. There's no patriarch of the church. There's no member more important than a number, another member. It doesn't matter how long you've been a member or what you've done for the church. There's only one head, Jesus Christ. There's only one who's purchased the church with his own blood. So the church does not belong to any one of us. So we must learn that this church is not about us. It's all about Christ. So be great. Serve. The second reason the disciples missed God's message, and the second reason that we miss God's message, 
is because of a desire for power. We miss God's message because of a desire for power. Note verses 38 to 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Apparently feeling the conviction of Christ, John speaks up. The disciples have have observed another man doing what they thought only they had the power to do. And it bothered them. They believed that because of their special position, They had special power. And suddenly this was turned on its head. And we struggle from the same issue. We desire power. We may desire it behind the scenes, but we desire it nonetheless. We we want the say. We want the influence. We want the control. And as a result, we miss God's message. As a result, we scorn those who don't follow us. Verse 38, John said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. This man was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and we need to conclude that this man was a follower of Jesus because he was successful and because Jesus didn't correct him. We're reminded in Acts 19, 13 to 16, of the seven sons of Sceva, these itinerant Jewish exorcists who went in and tried to cast out a demon in Jesus' name, and the demon responds, well, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't have a clue who you are. And he jumps on him and tears him apart. But this man was successful, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Now remember the context of this narrative here in Mark as well. Remember the preceding narrative? The nine disciples tried to cast out a demon out of the boy, and they couldn't. They failed to find someone else successfully casting out a demon in Jesus' name must have been a severe blow to the disciples' sense of identity. It had to have undermined their belief in their special status. To see an outsider succeeding where they, the chosen disciples of Jesus, have failed 
was distressing. So, John told the man to stop. Stop doing that. Why did John tell him to stop? Not because the man did not believe in Jesus. Not because the man was unsuccessful. (laughs) No. John told him to stop because he's not following us. John uses the word follow, which which has been used quite frequently so far in this gospel as a term for discipleship. But up to this point, the one being followed is always Jesus. But now, John says the man's not following us. That's new. That's definitely revealing. Apparently, the disciples were not concerned about the advance of the gospel. Apparently, the disciples were not really that concerned about the good of others. What the disciples were concerned about was their own power. Jesus, you gave us the authority to cast out demons. And we couldn't. And here's this man doing it. That's not right. But Jesus responds, focus instead on the kingdom. Verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink to you because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Notice the way Jesus switches the attention from following us to following me, to following Jesus. He tells John, don't stop the man. Don't do that. And he gives three reasons. All all these reasons you'll note in the text are prefaced by the word for. He says, verse 40, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 39, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. The first involves the explanation of a person who performs a miracle in Jesus' name. He's not going to suddenly slander Jesus. The second explanation involves a proverb, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. And the third explanation Again, verse 40, excuse me, verse 41, is that whoever does something good to one of God's children does something good for God himself. This echoes Matthew 25 and 34 to 46, where there's a group of people that come to eternity and they're standing before God the judge and God says, you are blessed because when I was hungry, you fed me and when I was naked, you clothed me and when I was cold, you gave me something to wear and when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they looked at him and said, that's wonderful, Jesus, but we have no idea when we did that. And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You see, instead of focusing on our power, we should be focusing on the kingdom. Instead of being in competition with other Christians, we should be focusing on the kingdom. Perhaps the most obvious application here 
is that Cambria Baptist Church is not in competition with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. No matter your history with the members of those other churches, we should rejoice when they succeed. We should not bristle when you believe that they stole our ideas. Rather, we should rejoice that the gospel is being proclaimed. We should not be upset when they grow. Instead, we should rejoice that the kingdom is advancing. This is why every Sunday in the pastoral prayer, I pray for another church in our area by name. We're reminded of what Paul said in Philippians 1, 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What would happen in Hillsdale County if instead of competing with other churches or looking on with disdain or jealousy, we prayed for and encouraged one another? You see, we're all members of the same kingdom. Jesus continued on instructing, secondly, that we should focus on eternity. Focus instead on eternity. Note verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Why should we not worry about our own power and influence? Because eternity is too important. It's too important for three reasons. First, because of the, serious, the seriousness of sin. Note verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It says whoever causes to sin to cause to stumble, to, to cause a failure on the part of others or, or trip or, or disables another's discipleship. Whoever causes one of these little ones to fall away, the phrase little ones there broadens the object lesson beyond just that child sitting on his lap, the vulnerable, to all who follow Christ that might be immature or weak or perhaps even new believers. So to cause them to sin 
refers to any temptation that might cause a fellow follower of Christ to trip up, to fail in their discipleship, or to cease following Christ. But as great as the reward is for even a small act of kindness toward another believer, equally great and horrible is the act of causing a believer to fall away. Jesus says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Great millstone, it refers to the giant upper millstones, these big rocks that were turned by oxen or donkey grinding the corn. It would be better if that giant granite rock was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the ocean. There's no surviving that. Jesus, in essence, is saying it would be better for you to be murdered than for you to cause another believer to fall away from following Christ. So when we act in pride, when we demand power, when we scandalize other believers, it would be better for us to be dead. Still think that pride isn't a big deal? Still think that it's just a disagreement? Still think that it's okay because that's just who our society is. Eternity is also important because of the reality of judgments. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus continues on to explain why eternity is, is so important. It's important because the day of judgment is coming. Jesus uses the most startling metaphors to show how important it is that we recognize that judgment is coming. He goes to the extent to say that whatever endangers spiritual life must be totally removed. Just like a surgeon uh, amputates a limb that endangers the life of the rest of the body. Now Jesus is not demanding the actual removal of our limbs. We're not saying that when we are able to gather together again, a bunch of us should not have hands or feet or eyes. No, he's demanding that we kill sinful activities. Commentator Robert Stein says, the sayings are a hyperbolic attempt by Jesus to warn his audience that there is no sin worth going to hell for. Better to repent, no matter how painful that repentance may be, and follow Jesus, whatever the cost, than to perish in hell. We're reminded of Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The three parts of the body signify what people do, where people go, and what they see and desire. And Jesus states that it's better to lose these than to go to hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
The word for hell here is the word Gehenna. This was the valley along the south side of the city of Jerusalem, which was used in Old Testament times for human sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. We find that in Jeremiah 7.31. And King Josiah put a stop to that horrible practice in 2 Kings 23.10. And then the valley of Hinnom, as it was called, this valley of Gehenna, came to be used as a place where human excrement and trash, including animal carcasses, were disposed of and burned. And the fire of Gehenna never went out. The worms never died. And by the time of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66, 24, and into the time of Jesus, it came to be used symbolically of the place of divine judgment. The fires of hell prepared for the devil and the demons. We should focus on eternity because of judgments. Finally, we should focus on eternity because of the need for witness. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Verse 49 at first feels very out of place, but it fits well with verse 50 and the need for witness. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire, refers to the sacrifice that we must make for the kingdom of God. Let me explain. In the law, God commanded that salt be a part of the sacrificial process. Exodus 30, 35, Leviticus 2, 13, Ezra 6, 9, Ezekiel 43, 23, and 24 all refer to this. So what Jesus is teaching is that every true disciple is to be a total sacrifice to God. And as salt always accompanied to the temple sacrifices, so fire will accompany the true disciples' sacrifices. Purifying fires of persecution were not to be thought of as strange to their position as Christians because everyone will be salted with fire. This is why Paul says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Further, we are to be like salt as well. Salt was used for a number of things in the first century, for seasoning, uh, for preserving, for medicinal purposes. But in Palestine, saltless salt was often a mixture of salt and impurities such as gypsum was mined from the Dead Sea and and frequently it appeared like perfectly good salt. But the gypsum made it worthless. So we might appear good on the outside, but if we are seeking after our own, own advancement, if we are seeking after our own position or, or power or recognition or our own way, he says, we are worthless to the kingdom of God. Instead of this, we are to focus on the kingdom, to focus on eternity. 
The paradox of the gospel is that the way of service, the way of Jesus himself is the, is the way to true greatness. In order to be true followers of God, we must be servants. To be at the top, we must run to the bottom. John MacArthur states, relationships are based on loving sacrifice and service. On selfless deferring to and giving to others. Pride, being self-focused, is indifferent to others. Beyond that, it is ultimately judgmental and critical and therefore divisive. Because of that, pride is the most common destroyer of both relationships and churches. It plagued the Corinthian church, causing Paul to ask, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Knowing that pride is the wedge Satan uses to split churches and splinter relationships, the Lord stressed to the disciples the crucial necessity of humility. We must learn that in this church. The kingdom of God and even our own lives are not about us. In order to be great, we must learn to serve. Lives are at stake. If we, in our arrogant pride, cause someone to fall away, it would have been better if we had been murdered. We should uh, continually exercise spiritual surgery, killing the sin in our lives, amputating those parts that lead us away from God. Only then will we, be, will we be great in the kingdom of God. You see, greatness is not measured by your position. It's not measured by your influence. Greatness is not measured by your power. Greatness is not measured by how many people know you or look up to you. Greatness is measured in the way that you serve. As a result, there are five things that we need to walk away with. Five so what's. Number one, stop seeking for positions or recognition. Just stop it. Seek instead to quietly serve others. Stop seeking for positions or recognition. Number two, stop insisting that things be done how you think they should be done. It doesn't have to be done how you think it should be done. It has to be done how the word says it should be done. And if the word doesn't say it, have grace. Follow the word and demonstrate humility and grace. Number three, you know if you're a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. You'll know if you're a servant by how you'll act if you're treated like one. Most of us don't like that very much, and it demonstrates the reality of our hearts. Number four, this is very practical. 
turn off social media. Turn it off. Stop talking about yourself. Seek Jesus instead. Spend that time in his word and in his prayer and ministering to others instead. You have much greater eternal reward. Number five, be great. Serve. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that your word gives us. Lord, we are like sheep that have gone astray, everyone seeking his own way. But you have laid our iniquity on your son. You have given us life. You have given us hope. And you have promised us unity when we seek you. So, Lord, that's what we want. Lord, we want what you want. Root out the pride in our hearts. Root out the arrogance that lurks in every one of us. Help us instead to seek to serve with no thought of return, but rather for your glory to make you look as good as you really are. We Thank you for the servants you have placed in our midst. We thank you for those in our body who do faithfully serve others and are content to be out of the limelight, content not to receive recognition, but simply want to please you. We pray that you'll honor them and help us to be like them. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.